Good morning, everybody. Good morning, and welcome to uh, Resurrection City Church. Uh, my name is Joel, and I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Res City. Um, someone mentioned this to me before church, so I suppose I should address it in case it's something you're wondering. This is just a green shirt. I thought I had, you know, put two seconds of thought into it. I am not subtly trying to say I'm cheering for any team in the Super Bowl today. I know we have some Chiefs fans here at Res City, and so I'm sorry if you're offended by my shirt choice. It's just a green shirt. I don't care who wins today. I hope it's a good game. <laughs> okay, um, let me pray, and then we'll get started with our sermon. Uh, Lord, thank you for being with us this morning, for your presence resting upon us as we, uh, cu- we gather together as your body uh, to worship, to serve, to use our gifts, to seek you out, to know you more, to grow more like your son, Jesus, God, to give you the, the glory and praise and honor that you're due um, as a gathered people, Lord. I pray that you'd help us to, uh, to, to grow, that you, as we study your word today, you'd help us to learn and, and figure out what it means um, to, to grow deeper in our, in our ability to walk by your spirit, God. Um, in the ways that we'll discuss. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so we are in a a series that we've been doing kind of at the start of 2023 here. We're running for a few weeks in it. I think next week is our last week, um, where we're talking about Christian spirituality, uh, walking by the Spirit is, is the big idea. We're taking it from a phrase that Paul uses in Galatians 5. And something I've found myself kind of continually coming back to as I, as I study and prepare for this is that it's kind of really hard, I think, to understand Christian spirituality as it's kind of developed for us in Scripture and throughout the Christian tradition. If you don't understand your connection to the body of Christ, it's actually a really important element of it. And we're going to talk about that today. Um, but I think, this is, I think it's important to note this is actually a really relevant issue for us. Um, there's like urgency for us to kind of recapture this vision, I think, that we all feel. Um, I, I could have picked a lot of studies to kind of use uh, to, to, to point this out, but I, I, I found one uh, preparing for this in, uh, from October 2020. It's, it's done by Harvard. It was a survey on what they called the loneliness epidemic in America. Um, there was some startling findings that they found in it. Um, 36%, so a third, this is one third of people, uh, reported serious loneliness, feeling lonely frequently or almost all of the time. And that number actually included 61% of young people aged 18 to 25. And they pointed out that 63% of young adults are suffering significant symptoms of anxiety or depression. Okay, now this probably doesn't surprise you at all uh, to, to hear that. Maybe you've seen similar studies that say the same thing. Um, but what kind of caught my eye on this, uh, aside from those kind of you know, freaky findings was the conclusion that the authors um, of that study came to at the end. They said, we need to return to an idea that was central to America's founding and is at the heart of many great religious traditions, that we have commitments to ourselves, but we also have vital commitments to each other, including to those who are vulnerable. I thought that connection with religious tradition was really important because that's what we see, I think, as we study walking in the spirit, what we've been talking about in this series. It's actually kind of the beating heart of it, I would say, even, to really understand Christian spirituality. So today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking about walking by the spirit with our gifts. 
Okay, that's going to be the big idea here, and, you know, I'll get to that in a second, and we're going to kind of just do an inventory of different spiritual gifts and how they sort of connect us to each other and serve the body today, but I think that idea behind it is, is really essential, and I want to make sure we have a, a good understanding of that before we get into these gifts, because I think it's exciting sometimes to talk about them and to think about, you know, what our gift might be, you know, what, what is it that God has blessed us with, but it's important for us to re- remember that the goal of the Spirit the one who gives us these gifts, is not just to fill us with the life of God, simply for us to feel better or to have some you know, extra power that we can use, right? Yes, the life of God that fills us and breathes into us and, and restores us, that matters. And we have spent you know, several sermons on that in this series, and including last week. Um, and God cares about us individually, but that's not the end goal for him in doing so. Christian spirituality isn't supposed to remove us from each other by sort of sweeping us up into private religious experiences that we might have, um, okay? And, and that's, I think, in contrast to how we often hear, you know, spirituality when it's talked about today. Like, often we talk about it, it's a very individual thing. It's practices we choose to kind of maximize us, to balance us, to center us, to, you know, and, and it's, it's basically like essentially therapeutic. It's kind of centered on us. We don't really think much about how that is supposed to connect or what really what any relation it has with other people, right? That's just kind of how we're taught to think when we talk about spirituality. Now, I think a spirituality like that contributes to, it spurs on that sort of loneliness and atomization that we find when we look at studies like the one I mentioned before, okay? Uh, I talked about this a a few sermons ago. Christian spirituality is spirituality with accountability, where we have accountability to each other and to God, right? Being, uh, it's not comparable to a solo artist playing her own tune. It's being a part of a spiritual orchestra, where we, you know, each instrument is connected to each other. There's a balance and a harmony between them, and we find we're actually better as part of a whole than we are individually. And that's really the, the vision, I think, behind what Paul has in mind when he talks about walking by the Spirit as we really study it. And let me, let me show you what I mean here, okay? We, we've been spending a lot of time in 1 Corinthians because Paul talks a lot about the Spirit in 1 Corinthians, and there's some issues with their Corinthian spirituality that he's addressing. And we're using a lot of that to help kind of fu- fuel our understanding of it today. And, and Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 12 and verses 7, and then I'll jump ahead to 12 and 13. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Just as a body, though one has many parts, um, but all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or, or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. Okay, so for Paul, there's this sort of fundamental connection between God pouring his spirit out onto us and connecting us to one another by that common commonality of the spirit. Now, one of the things that Paul says happens to us when we walk by the Spirit is there is this sort of, you know, manifestation of the Spirit that is given to us. And that's what we're going to, like I said, we're going to really spend time talking about what those different manifestations might look like. And if you remember, in our, in our first sermon in the series, I kind of talked about how in the Old Testament we see the Spirit of God showing up quite a bit. And it would sometimes come on people to fill them with power, with wisdom, with knowledge, uh, or you know, something for, for some purpose of God that was connected to like an individual situation that's going on. Right? Here we see, I think, the same idea. 
the Spirit comes on us, and it's not for our own uh, benefit, but for the common good, Paul says. Right? It's, it's for those around us. It's not primarily for us. Okay? So in, in other words, I think in a sense what you could say, what makes these gifts spiritual, that's often what they're called as spiritual gifts, is that they're actually for the body. They're actually for, to be used for the good of others around us. And an essential part, I think, of Christian spirituality is to use these gifts or manifestations that get poured on, a, on us for the, the common good and for the good of the body, the people sitting in this room right here. Now, the word that's, often, that's used here by Paul is, is a Greek word, charisma. Um, it's actually the same word for grace uh, that we, we read that Paul uses. It's often translated spiritual gifts. I think other language we can maybe use to describe these things are, are like ministries, aptitudes, skills, talents, interests. It's, I think it's, we'll talk about it. It's kind of a wide range of things that get poured out on us to be used for the common good. That is really the spirit, I think, working in us to build up the body. And so what we're going to do for the rest of the sermon today is we're just going to walk through like a, a couple of different lists that Paul gives in, in his letters. And we're just going to kind of unpack each one of them to some degree or another just to help us gain an understanding of these and what it looks like for them to serve in the body. That's, that's the sermon, okay? Now, Paul uses a couple, he, he has a kind of a couple lists that people tend to draw these from in the New Testament. One is from 1 Corinthians 12 and one is from Romans 12. And here are the things that show up on those two lists. So you have wisdom, you have knowledge, you have faith, you have healing, power, prophecy, discernment, tongues and the interpretation of tongues, service, teaching, encouragement, giving, leading, and mercy. Those are everything that Paul lists. Um, and it's kind of a, a large you know, a list of ways that we could talk about the Spirit you know, blessing people around us. Now notice, some of them seem a little bit more kind of supernatural in practice, and those actually, you know, mostly come from that 1 Corinthians list. Some of them actually seem fairly grounded. You might not even think that this is a, a manifestation of God's Spirit that comes on us when we do these things. That actually comes mostly from the Romans list. And I do think it's important to point out that this is not an exhaustive list. I think Paul's point was to kind of give us a textbook with every single way that the Spirit can fill us uh, for the common good or for the blessing of the body around us. All right, you know, this isn't like the Enneagram where there's only nine of them, right? Th these are not the only ones that are there. There could be lots of ways the Spirit could move through us, and I think we will find that sometimes the Spirit does work in very creative and unique ways, and, and often I think we might find that while, you know, one of these things might come more natural for us, the Spirit might shift, uh, you know, our gifts sometimes as we continue to walk by the Spirit to equip us for different situations and seasons, all right, so let's dive into these here. And, and actually, for the sake of time, I'm going to skip a couple of them. Uh, we're going to skip prophecy because we did a whole sermon on that a few weeks ago. Um, we're going to skip wisdom because we did a series on that a few years back, and so I'd refer you to that. And then we're going to skip teaching because we'll actually hit up on that a little bit next week. Okay? And as we do it, as we kind of walk through these, I thought a helpful kind of picture that can help us understand a way to think about it as we kind of unpack each of these comes from the movie Inside Out. Okay, how many of you guys have seen this movie? Okay, good, okay, good. I always feel like when I, you know, try to use like a TV or, or a TV show or movie like analogy, I'm like, 
I'm, ho- I'm just hoping like a, the majority of you have, have seen it, and I felt like this is one a lot of people have seen, thankfully. So, okay, good. If you remember the movies about a young girl, her name's Riley, and Riley has all these emotions who are kind of characters in her head. And they're actually the main characters of the movie are these emotions kind of navigating Riley's life together. You have joy, anger, sadness, disgust, and fear. Those are all the, all the ones in the picture here. And, and Joy, who's kind of like the main character, basically kind of thinks she's the only one that matters. And, the, and, the, and Riley needs her to kind of be running the show in order to be like a fulfilled, fulfilled human. And, and as the movie goes on, Joy kind of learns that's not actually the case. Like, she shouldn't always be the one taking the lead, right? Joy is not the only response in any given situation that Riley goes through. And the, the world requires more from Riley in terms of her interaction with it than just Joy. Um, And when you see when Joy takes over, things kind of go, kind of go awry, right? Sometimes we need sadness or we need anger or fear, disgust to kind of take the lead based on whatever type of situation we're in. And I think that's how these gifts, these manifestations of the spirit that we're talking about today, I think that they kind of function in a similar lower way for us as a larger body of Christ, right? They need each other, There isn't one that's supposed to be sidelining the others in any given body. It's important that they're working together. There's a sort of harmony between them. Um, When when one takes the lead, we can't have the sort of complex interactions with the world around us that we need to have. And then they think when one takes the lead, we actually stop truly walking in the spirit in the way that Paul envisions for us. Okay, so what I want to do is, as we go through each of these, I want to ask, a, you know, I'll kind of explain it, and then we'll ask a couple questions. What good does this contribute to the body, and what does it look like when this thing kind of runs the show, and, and things can go a little bit awry, because they're taking things too far, right? There's no harmony between the other gifts. All right, so let, we'll do that here with, with all these different ones, and let, let's hop into it now. And even though this, this one's the last one on, on Paul's list in 1 Corinthians, we'll just start here with tongues. Okay, so tongues is, is kind of an interesting gift, and, and you know, there, there's, we talked about this with prophecy a few weeks ago. There's, there's probably a range of opinions and experiences in any given, you know, room of Christians on this one, and I think that, that's important to, to note. Um, it, 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 what we can discern from, from, from Corinth, which is where we learn most of what Paul has to say about tongues, this is actually kind of a big issue in the assembly there. And it's not that they were doing them, but how they were doing them. And, and how Paul talks about it, I think, um, is really helpful for us to understand these gifts uh, pretty well. So, so what is it? Um, well, tongues appear in Acts 2, if you're kind of familiar with that part of Acts, where, where a bunch of people start speaking in different human languages to one another, right? Like, it's like a Google Translate for the ancient world. But when Paul talks about tongues here, and I think when you talk with, when people bring up tongues today, that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about something different than that. Okay, so Paul's likely referring to a sort of spontaneous and unintelligible uh, utterance that someone would break out into during their worship services, right? Maybe even during like a song, perhaps. We know that singing was like a central part of the service in the ancient church. And the Corinthians seem to, and Paul as well, it seems like, believed that they were speaking in tongues of angels, right? So it's like an angelic language. The language of heaven is what's being, you know, spoken by these people. But the, pr- the problem is, for Paul, is that when you talk like this, nobody knows what you're saying, including you, 
Like, no one knows what's going on. And um, so when, when you hear people talk about tongues, this is generally what, what they're discussing. Um, and it's, it's a little bit tough because Paul's talking about an abuse of these tongues in, in Corinthians. Um, so I, I think that it's helpful, though, because I think sometimes you still see some similar stuff. Now, honestly, my opinion on this, right, based on what I've, I've seen myself and, and what Paul says here, is like this is, this is like, I almost want to say like a designer gift, a luxury gift that, that a person can have, right? It, it, it is, there's, there, we'll talk about the good that it brings, but there, it doesn't have much utility for the body because what you're saying, no one can understand. Not even you know what you're saying. If you remember, if you're going back to that prophecy sermon, Paul compares tongues to prophecy, and he basically says that you should pursue prophecy over tongues because prophecy benefits people. Now, Paul says this even though he himself speaks in tongues, he says, and he tells them, I don't want you to prohibit the use of these in the assembly. But because they're unintelligible, they don't really edify the church. And for Paul, that is a sort of fundamental thing that the Spirit does, is it wants to build up the whole body. In order for tongues to do that, you need some interpreters to be able to kind of um, speak with it, right? So that this is a spirituality that has accountability, like we've been talking about. And so I would say, actually, of this list, this one's a bit of an outlier because it is, it is for, I think, really when it's used in the way I think Paul wants it to be, it is actually used as a private individual experience. All right? Now, for those reasons, I would leave it up to you for how much you would want to pursue this, right? There is, there is personal utility, but there is not really utility for the whole body with these things. I don't want to dismiss them, but I think Paul's own argument is to redirect the Corinthians t- towards seeking out these other gifts first. All right? And I think I, I should comment this on this probably just because when you hear people discuss tongues, sometimes this comes up. There is a belief among some Christians that tongues is like a sign that accompanies a second, kind of more powerful dispensation of the Spirit. And it's sometimes called like a, the baptism in the Holy Spirit, right? It's not referring to like a water baptism. It's something that comes after it. And it's for like, you know, bonus Holy Spirit experience and power. It's kind of how it's, it gets discussed. Now, I'll just say my own personal opinion on this, right? I'm usually pretty open-handed on different views among Christians between things. But I have to be honest, I actually think this one's a little bit misguided. Um, I think the biblical arguments here for it are experiential ones that get retrofitted back onto texts and don't really fit that, you know, like what's going on in the actual text. And I think at worst, it can create a view of like first and second class citizens within the church. Those who kind of have tongues and this special experience of the spirit and those who don't. And that's going against the total opposite point of what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians when he discusses tongues. Right? The Corinthians really did seem to think of themselves as like a first-class Christian, as spirit people. That seems to be like a moniker that they used to describe themselves as. And Paul's whole point to them is that you're actually becoming more immature by doing this. He basically says, you have a child's view of spirituality when this is where you're ending up. That's kind of what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians, okay? So that's, that's my thought on that, all right, if that's something you've, you've experienced. Now, the good, I think, that tongues provides us as a body is it gives us a sense that we're in God's holy court, right? If this is uh, the language of heaven, 
it shows we do have access to God. And that matters. It, it matters for us to know we have access to God through Jesus. It's a big point in lots of parts of the Bible is we have this reminder that we are people who can come near to God. And I, that's why I don't want to dismiss this gift. All right, but when tongues is running the show on its own, like we see in Corinth, I think we can see ourselves getting detached from reality. We can find ourselves becoming arrogant, and we can't even communicate with each other. In, these, in the deep spiritual ways that we're trying to seek God out. Okay, let's go on to knowledge here. I, I will try to spend less time on the rest of these, I promise. Let's talk knowledge. Uh, literally what Paul's talking about here, I think, is an utterance or word of knowledge. Now, it's hard to know what Paul means here, so I'll be super brief on it. Some people take it as like a piece of like, you know, personal information that's revealed to you about somebody else. Some people read it as like just knowledge for teaching. Um, it could be something else entirely. Either way, Okay? I think it's, it, it, we can all understand the good that knowledge has. Right? It gives us information that we need as a church. Right? Info matters. We need it in order to have wisdom, in order to understand things, to do decision-making, to, to really to accomplish anything. We have to have some information. And so it's good when the Spirit reveals things to us. But when knowledge is running the show, I think we become people who turn knowledge into an idol. And we need certainty before we go do anything. We won't, we, won't go, we won't take a step of faith in any situation because we need the certainty. And oftentimes, we don't get that. Oftentimes, we don't have knowledge about how everything is going to go, and we need to be willing to have faith. Right? And speaking of faith, let's talk about faith next. That's the next one on the list here, so that's perfect timing. By faith, I think Paul means an endowment of supernatural conviction and trust and hope in God that he will reveal his power or mercy in a special way, in a specific instance. Now, faith is, I think it's clearly something we all need to have. And there's a reason that faith is mentioned constantly in the New Testament, right? It's brought up as the backbone of everyone's salvation in Jesus. And, and the author of Hebrews goes so far as to say that without faith, it's actually impossible to please God. Okay, that's how, that's how fundamental faith is to following Jesus. But it, it does seem like sometimes for some people there is a sort of inspirational quality to their own faith to kind of inspire us all, to lead us all, to, to walk you know, and trust God in a specific situation where that might be really difficult for everybody. The good that faith provides us is it challenges us, I think, against the typical uh, human over-reliance on ourselves. And to remember that we are who we are, not because of what we've done or what we can accomplish or what, you know, what we can get to because of our certainty, um, but because of Jesus. God is God, and we are not God, right? It's easy to forget that and, I think, become overconfident or to despair or be depressed. And I think when we think it all comes down to us, we're usually going to end up in one of those two places, depression, despair, or overconfidence. And faith reminds us that that's not true. It pushes us off of those two things. And I think it gets us through situations where we are especially aware of our lack of control. But when faith runs the show, I think we can start to ignore what's plain to see around us, right? Certain facts or certain things that, that are actually very true and we need to take account of that we might dismiss because we get grounded on, some, on something, you know, like a vague sense of optimism that things are going to work out, right? Or that we're right about something, right? Because we think that that's true. And we just call it faith. When really, it's an unwillingness to sort of admit what is true around us. Okay, let's talk healing here. 
I think the expectation by Jesus, by Paul and others, is that in the new age that gets ushered in by Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, physical healing of bodily ailments would occur. Okay, these are signposts that are, are pointing toward a fully restored physical world that will come when Jesus returns. And healings like this occur throughout Jesus' ministry. We get some in Paul's own ministry in the book of Acts and other people as well. And, and I think there's a decent chance that in this room, most of us, if not all of us, have some story where we believe we've seen God truly show up and heal somebody, right? Um, and, and sometimes, you know, we're going to find God doing the same, same through us, right? And I think further, I think it's fair to kind of talk about healing with a bit of a wider net, to talk about the ways in which people can find healing from people who are skilled to walk them through, like, psychological or emotional uh, issues, right? Or maybe people who just do have an understanding of the body who help us heal us, right? So I think we see healing happen in all sorts of ways, and it's good. It reminds us that God is in our midst, right? That's why healing is a good thing. That's what it provides us as a body, right? It's pretty, pretty self-evident, the good that healing has. I don't think I need to convince you of that. When healing runs the show, though, on its own, I think it leads us to an expectation of comfort and triumphalism that is sort of out of tune with the actual New Testament and what Jesus calls us to. Okay, I think it's a very Western and honestly, a very, I think a very white expectation that we are supposed to live a very comfortable life without pain. That, you know, we will, you know, uh, everything we want to accomplish, we should get. There shouldn't be anything that, you know, gets in the way of us getting that. And a lot of times we view things like pain or injury as some obstacle to those things. And so we expect to get over those things, right? But when we get sick or injured, okay, I think we project that onto God. And so when we pray to God for healing and, if it, and it doesn't happen, I think sometimes we can find ourselves getting upset or skeptical, Okay, here, here's something I think it's important for us to remember when we talk about healing. Our comfort and happiness is not the primary point of healings when it comes to Scripture and Christian and following Jesus, right? Instead, actually the norm, the normal experience for us as we follow Jesus is that we're following a crucified Lord who calls us to take up our own crosses and to follow him, even to death. That's the norm, Okay, not comfort, not rescue from everything bad that might happen to us. And I think we might think that the most faith-filled people around us are the ones who expect a miracle healing in every situation. But I would actually say, oftentimes, the most faith-filled followers of Jesus are the ones whom God hasn't healed and are still praising him anyway. All right, let's talk power here. Let's go to power. Sometimes this is translated miracles, depending on what translation you have. Literally, though, it's the affecting of power. That's kind of the, the literal Greek here. Now, again, what does Paul mean by that? It's a pretty vague term. Um, I think it probably just covers abnormal activities beyond healing the sick. All right? Um, I, don't think, but I don't think necessarily that means, like, you know, street magic, right, or parlor tricks. I think that sometimes we might think of that when we think of miracles. I think it casts like a wide net, and it's best to not define this too rigidly. All right, so for example, when Jesus speaks in the gospel, sometimes, uh, you know, there's, it, we're told that he, you know, people recognize he had this kind of authority in how he spoke, right? And it just arrested people's attention. They understood 
something incredible, you know, they were hearing something incredible from, for, from someone incredible. And I think, you know, that sort of abnormal authority is a sign of the work of the Spirit in power in Jesus' ministry, right? I think that's an example we could have of power, okay? So I think it's best to cast a wide net with this. So why is power good? Well, it's good because stuff happens. Like, stuff that seems stuck gets unstuck, right? Things that seem like they can't go, go when power fills it, right? And people are left with no explanation other than God had shown up. But when power runs the show, I think it can develop in people a sort of insatiable appetite for triumph and success, right? I think you see this sometimes in very, you know, charismatic Christian leaders. Like, they just assume that everything they want, they'll get because they've been, they've, they've been used to seeing that in the past, and, and they'll power their way right through anyone who gets in their way. When the church is focused on power, I think we end up being very unchristlike. Remember, Christ had access to all power imaginable, but his use of that was to give it away, to empty himself of it so that he could die on a cross for us. Like he could, I mean, he could have got off that cross as he wanted to, right? It was nothing, nothing holding him up there except his own unwillingness to, to not get off of it in power, but he sought something greater than power in that. He was seeking out love. Okay, and love is the type of thing that should always be on top of power for us as we try uh, to follow Jesus. All right, let's move on to discernment here. There's some debate, again, on this one as well as to what it actually means. Like, literally, Paul says discerning spirits. So it's like, well, what, well how long do you have to get into a discussion of what Paul might have meant by spirits? But I'll just say, I think the simplest explanation is just sort of cutting through the noise, the ability to cut through the noise around us and help us know what God is and what he isn't up to in a situation. All right, so why is the sermon good? Right? Well, there is a lot going on around us in any given day, right? And it's, impo- it's important for us to be led by the Spirit to cut through that noise, to know where God is leading us. Because there's a lot of red herrings that we could go after, right? If we just followed after anyone who, you know, anything we thought might be God moving or someone claims was God moving, right? We hear countless messages about what we should do, who we should be, how we should focus our energy, what causes we should undertake, right? And we need the help of the Spirit to help us navigate through all that. Okay, a good example of this, I think, is on issues of justice and race. This has been an important conversation going on in the church, especially for the last few years, for obvious reasons. And there's a lot of Christians on all sides of this debate kind of weighing in, saying this is what the Bible tells us to do, or this is what God says we ought to do, or this is what Christians should do, right? And, and there's so much noise. We, what we need is to pause and let the Spirit give us discernment to navigate our way through those things, to follow after the Spirit. And it's good for people who have that gift to kind of take the lead in those situations. Now, when discernment is running the show, though, I think discernment is a naturally suspicious gift, right? If you're a discerning person, you kind of, you tend to be a little bit skeptical of things before you just jump on board with them, right? And so I think when discernment runs the show by itself, we can become skeptical and distrustful and afraid of everything, right? We, we, the smallest perceived deviation from gospel truth, you know, m- you know that, that someone could, could potentially see becomes grounds for kind of canceling the whole thing. And, and we lose the ability to eat the meat and spit out the bones, 
if it were, right? To kind of uh, take on something and sort of have some balance and wisdom as we use it, even knowing maybe everything in here is not totally the Spirit of God, but God still could be using it to give us some, uh, lead us towards some life. All right, let's talk about service here. Okay, now this is the same word as ministry or servant, um, or actually the, the, the same, it's where we get the word deacon from. So if you've ever been a part of a church or have heard of, of deacons, it's actually the same word as service, okay? That just means servants. In Acts 6, there are some servants, some deacons, who are commissioned to help with the food, and food distribution during the church's meal, right? And they call them deacons and they call them servants, Right? And so these are people that are willing to commit to less glamorous but essential tasks of the church. These are people who are willing to put that task above themselves and are not, not worried about getting any spotlight on them. They just want to make sure stuff gets done, the, st- the kind of behind-the-scenes stuff that really matters. Okay? Now, in that sense, if you serve in any role, I think, kind of in a general sense at Red City, you're doing this. But I think there are some times where we, like, we like really see this, okay? And the thing that always comes to me is when we first planted Res City, we had this thing called the setup team, RIP, but I don't think anyone misses being on the setup team, okay? Um, there were a lot of days where, like, it always blizzarded on Saturday night for some reason. And so these people would show up. It's freezing cold out. There's snow everywhere. And they would unpack an entire sanctuary's worth of stuff, basically, um, from, from our... Um, from this building, actually, we'd throw it in a trailer, we'd drive it over to the school, and then they'd unpack it all and they'd set everything up. And then they would do it all, you know, again afterwards and bring it all back, okay? If, if that's not an, a, a, a version of this, I don't know what one is. And, but the thing about it was, this was so cool, and this is why I feel like you really were seeing that gift and operation is because I never remember anyone complaining about it. Like, I could see in their faces sometimes, when it was like 10 below, and we were using, like, we were using a lighter to try and, like, thaw the lock on the trailer because it was frozen. Like, I could see in their face, they're like, okay, this kind of sucks. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, there was no complaint. There was no, like, you know, I'm quitting after today. Like, that, people were so great about it, and there was just, you know, mostly smiles on their faces. There was a true enjoyment to doing that. And I think that was so awesome and a great example of this gift in, in, in operation. So the good that service does here, I think, is it ensures the necessary tasks of the church are accomplished even if nobody notices it, right? Even if, like, no one really thought about the fact that it was 10 below and these people were freezing to make this happen, like, that's the point, right? They're willing to do that. They're not looking for any um, gratification. And I think what that does, when we reflect on that, is it inspires all of us to similar humble Christ-like service, When service runs the show, though, I think, um, we can get more worried about excellence and efficiency and putting out a good product than we actually do about people and God, right? And that's the whole point. We lose the the vision that the whole reason we're doing this is for the good of people. All right, let's talk about encouragement here. Okay, encouragement. Maybe you think of, like, you know, someone's running a marathon and, like, there are people standing on the side with signs, like, you got this, right? I don't think that's what this is, all right? Or, or I don't think it's finding silver linings in everything, all right? Even when people don't want you to find a silver lining in it, all right? Or just kind of always being generally positive, right? There are, I think, in, that, that definitely people need to hear words of encouragement, okay? And sometimes I think that, that that's what this is, right? People saying something that really lifts your spirit in a situation, but I want to go deeper than that with this gift, 
okay? Because I think it's actually, it's more important than just kind of saying a nice, encouraging word to someone. I think it serves a larger purpose in the church. So when we study the, the Greek word, it comes from another Greek word that means to summon or call, all right? And if you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about Barnabas, and I told you all, you should be like Barnabas. If there's anyone in the Bible other than Jesus that you want to try and be like, Barnabas is a good one to be like because his nickname was Son of Encouragement. This is just something people knew as they were going to be encouraged by Barnabas. But I, you ask yourself, like, well, where did he get that nickname from? I think that we kind of see a pattern in Barnabas that helps us understand why that was. So Barnabas, in the story we talked about a few weeks ago in Acts 11, um, talking about the church in Antioch, Okay, Barnabas goes there to help, you know, lead this church through this sort of un, unprecedented situation that's going on. But he goes and gets Paul to help him to do it. And at this point, Paul is like in his hometown. He kind of was probably, I mean, kind of honestly got sidelined by the church a little bit. Um, and he's just off and he probably doesn't have any clue when he's going to get back, you know, back to helping God. He maybe never even knew if he was going to get back to helping God. Barnabas goes to get Paul, and he says, hey, there's something really cool going on in Antioch, and I think you're the right man to help me figure out how to navigate this situation. Okay, so Barnabas's encouragement wasn't just saying, hey, Paul, you're awesome. It was actually going and unlocking a, a calling, a ministry from Paul, because it's at this point that Paul starts to really become the Paul that we know when we read the Bible. It was because Barnabas encouraged him or called him to this ministry and unlocked something in Paul. It was a catalytic moment for him, right? Encouraging him to take the first step that led him to be the guy that we are, you know, reading Bible, you know, uh, letters from, right? He needed someone to draw that out of him, okay? I think encouragement is fuel that keeps the other gifts going, and in, and in some cases is unlocking people's gifts and callings. Okay, I think that's why it's such an essential gift, actually, for us. It keeps us going, right? I can, I can just speak from experience, and you probably can too. When there's something that you feel like you're gifted in, right, and someone encourages you in that, like when someone encourages me in, in teaching or something, man, it makes me want to go and do it even more. Like, it makes me want to continue to grow and to serve people with that thing when someone encourages me with it, all right? And, and for the people whose callings are unlocked by someone encouraging them, by someone saying to them, hey, I think you'd be really good at this. Hey, have you ever considered doing this? You would be awesome at it. Kind of pulling something out of them that they didn't know was there, it is a hugely important gift for our churches. And I think that's why it's on this list here. Now, when encouragement is running a show on its own, I think we are unwilling to share hard truths with each other. Okay, we don't make people aware of their blind spots. We only point out the things that they're good at instead of helping, uh, you know, give them a full 360 view of themselves and say, hey, you know, you're good at this, but, you know, this is an area of growth for you. Have you considered that this is something that you can maybe pray about and grow in? Okay, we spit, we, we quit speaking real truth to people when encouragement is the only thing we're seeking after. And when that happens... We're not actually helping people out. We're not actually serving them. Okay, let's talk giving here. In the early church, when you, when you really study it and you kind of think about, man, how did this thing even really get off the ground? You come to the conclusion pretty quickly that there were benefactors, people that kind of had some, some resources that were helping them get it off the ground. 
right? So a good example is in Acts 16, a woman named uh, Lydia in, in the city of Philippi. She's an independent businesswoman um, who dealt clothing for very wealthy people without, without getting the specifics of it. And, and she was very likely a major benefactor for the early church, a patron, someone who was kind of supplying a lot of their financial needs for people like Paul and the actual churches themselves, and even giving them a space to meet um, in her home, which was probably a very nice space to meet. Okay, making all the stuff that we want to do as people who follow after Jesus, right, it, it requires resources, okay, and we have to pay for that somehow, right? And the people who are, are good at giving, I think, are the ones who oftentimes help us to do that to a large degree. Now, I need to say this real quickly here. I think it's, it's, all of our, it's part of all of our discipleship to give. Okay? So don't hear me saying, you know, uh, we'll, we'll pick two or three people in the church and we'll let them pay for everything. Right? It's part of all of our discipleship to do this. But some people are gifted lots of resources to be graciously used by God, I think, in the service of God's people. Okay? So the good that it provides is it helps us, helps us supply us with all our needs. Now, uh, there are, you know, I've seen stats about this. Uh, you know, I'm not sure how you know, perfect they are, but I have seen this in, actual, in the actual accounting of churches. When you actually look at the specific giving, it's often said that, like, 80% of the giving in a church comes from about 20% of the people, right? There's usually a small base of people that are giving, you know, well beyond their means, and that's actually making the bulk of the giving in a church. Now, I think it would be great if that weren't, weren't the case, right? But that's often what you see, and I think when you see that, that is the good of those people kind of going above and beyond to really help support uh, the work of ministry financially. Okay, but when giving runs the show, and I think this is important for us to, to keep in mind too, when giving runs the show, we start to think all of our problems can be solved by throwing money at them, right? In reality, I think money by itself solves very few of our problems and actually creates more of them oftentimes, all right? So we have to make sure that, you know, giving does not, or, or, or the, the money that we have is not the thing kind of guiding us or leading us in the different situations that we find ourselves in. All right, we're getting close to the end. Don't worry. Two more. Leading. Okay, now is this organizational leadership or the quality of people, you know, some quality in someone that people just naturally want to follow after them, right? It, it's hard to know. Paul doesn't say. I think, it, again, it probably doesn't matter that much to define it too rigidly. Um, but again, this one's pretty self-evident. I think we can all kind of understand the good that leadership provides us. It gives us organization, vision, efficiency, strategy, administration, all these things, all these things are, I think, essential for a body, an organization, right? It, and it mobilizes and gets, it mobilizes other gifts and kind of gets everyone on the same page. So it's not just a bunch of people kind of doing something on their own. Leadership sort of coordinates all this other stuff we've been talking about. And that's super, super important. But I think when leadership runs the show, we can sometimes, I think, become more interested in strategies and methods and budgets and all that stuff than in just the, the primary point of following after Jesus, right? We turn Jesus into some kind of ancient leadership guru, right, where he just has all these, you know, you know, different things that we ought to be doing that we can learn and we can apply it in any setting, right, and that we start to think of different metrics. We're relying solely on different metrics in what we're doing, right, whatever you want to call them, like salvations or, you know, d decisions for Jesus or whatever, but, but really what we're thinking about is like a, you know, we're tr it's like a product we're selling. We're trying to measure the efficiency like we're any other, any old business, but the church isn't a business, 
okay? We have to incorporate some stuff that we find outside of the church, I think, and that can help us to grow the church, okay? But we can never do that at the expense of remembering that the church is not a business. The church is different than a business. The church is about growing people to be more like Jesus. All right, let's, let's, let's end with mercy here, okay? Again, I could cast a wide net with this one probably, but it's certainly not less than concern for the least of these and seeing justice be done, right? A group of people who, 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 who deeply care about that and lead us all to it, right? A sensitivity to the poor, to the marginalized, to the oppressed, right? And again, I think this is self-evident as to why this matters, Right? I don't think we need to take a lot of time to unpack this as a church. And we take, it, we take this, this is something we try to take very seriously at Res City. The good that mercy does for us is that it opens our eyes to the incredible injustice going on in the world around us. Compellingly challenging us not to ignore it, but to follow Jesus in caring about people's lives and not just about their souls. But when mercy runs the show, I think the good news of Jesus can just become a social program. Right, where salvation is actually just kind of creating like wage equality or something like that. Right? Where we and we start to think of our righteousness as tied to our work to do things like fight injustice or build the kingdom of God through our own work and efforts. Right? And then we start to see arrogance creeping in, I think, as well. So that's something we have to keep in mind, I think, when we when we seek out mercy. But um, absolutely, it's something we have to keep central and at the very heart of what we're doing as a church and the people who have this gift. Help it to stay there for us. All right, so to close, I want to ask, I want you to, you know, as you're thinking through these gifts, I want you to ask yourself a couple questions. First of all, am I even really aware of manifestations of the Spirit in me? Right? Do I even kind of understand the way that the Spirit has come on me to, to serve, has given me some gift or, or ministry or talent or aptitude that can be used for the body? And then that second question gets applied to it. How am I using them in love for the body? Right? I think these are two quite important questions we have to ask that always have to be kind of kept together. Right? So I would love for you to consider that. And, and you know, this week in community group, man, if you are asking that, that first question, like, what are my you know, manifestations? Like, what are the gifts of the, of the Spirit in me? That's a great time to ask people around you. And pray that someone has the gift of encouragement to draw something out of you. <laughs> right? If you're really not sure where, what that is. Okay? It's a good use of that. Um, okay, so let me end here to put a bow on everything we've talked about today. This comes from a, 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 a New Testament author named Gordon Fee. He says, for those who walk in the Spirit, Paul's primary instruction is love one another. Anytime we talk about these gifts, right, it can be easy to think of it like a personality test, right, or, or some, kind of, some kind of fun thing we learn about ourselves, and then we get really excited and enamored with us, right, and how good we are at this thing, right, kind of craving approval from other people, but we are misunderstanding these gifts if our purpose in studying them and trying to draw them out of ourselves is not love. If it's not to love one another with them, we are, we are missing the point with these things. And it is so important for Paul that we are asking ourselves, is Christ-like love my primary motivator when I use this gift? All right, so as you think about that this week, I'd love for you to, to be considering that because a church walking in love with their gifts Understanding their connection to one another is a church full of the Spirit. And that's what we want to be here at Res City. 